Okay. Chapter 21. We are moving through. Before I do that, I want to mention this to you. There's a copy. This is a little pamphlet that the PCA sent out to all the churches. Uh, the title of it is Our Daughters in the Transgender Craze, Responding with Grace and Truth. Uh, we can get more copies of this if people are interested in reading this. If you look out upon the world and you wonder why it's so confused as it seems to be at this point, this is a very good thing for you to read. So I'd encourage all of you to do it. It's not just about this. It's about this culture and how this culture is corrupting our young people. And we can sit by idly and do nothing about it except complain. <laughs> or we can actually engage in trying to save these young people. Okay. Uh, okay. So back to Acts chapter 21. Uh, Paul has basically finished technically his third missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. And he knows full well that when he gets there that he is going to suffer a very great deal. And possibly even die. Simply because he's been true to God's calling to go forth into the nations and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's read the first uh, 26 uh, verses of chapter 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to uh, Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. Uh, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out uh, the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and went uh, on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Potomus, uh, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them uh, for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying uh, for many days, a prophet named Abacus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge.
Paul has already said, as we studied uh, last week, he made it, uh, made it known to those around him. He said this, he said, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. Now, just let me say this. I am not a great Greek scholar, uh, but Mike and I had a conversation this week, and that is this. Is, is there sometimes when you're a little Greek, it helps you to understand things in a way that you would not know what otherwise. So I'm very thankful for that. You know, it's, it's not fun taking all those Greek classes and talking to Mike, and he'll tell you that. And he's memorizing all these verb tenses and this, that, and the other, and, and whatever. Uh, but having some knowledge of the original language really does sometimes give you insights into particular passages that you probably would not have otherwise. One of the things that I took note of this week is uh, it talks here about the Holy Spirit constraining Paul in uh, the ESV. But let me show you, let me give you a few others. Uh, some of them translated as warned, others uh, translated as compelled. Uh, in the NAS, which has always been kind of my favorite one because this most wooden one is bound. Ultimately, what I want you to understand is this. <laughs> is Paul is saying, I have no choice in the matter. In other words, this is what God has determined. He's revealed it to me. He, God's already revealed to him what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. But what he is literally saying here is, my friends, I know you, and, and I guess I'm putting words in the apostles' mouth at this time, but, but uh, my friends, I know your hearts are true, you care about me and this, that, and the other, but you need to understand something. I literally do not have a choice in this matter at all. This is not something I've decided to do on my own. This is something that God has set into motion a long time ago, and he's bringing it to fruition. I have no choice but to go to Jerusalem, so please stop trying to convince me to do otherwise. And just remember, Paul is first and foremost an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, he's just as human as you and I are. I don't think anybody with a right mind would relish the kind of things that Paul is going to suffer when he gets to Jerusalem, and he knows it. Now, think about Paul, too, and I'm not sure he understands this at this point. Is this, is this, is this suffering that he's going to endure is going to go on for years. It's not something that he's going to go there and be martyred right off the bat. It's, he's going to... He's going to spend some time there. He's going to wind up in Rome for years and this, that, and the other under house arrest. It's going to go on and on and on for years of his life. But 
But he knows this. He knows that he is first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ. Therefore, what he thinks, what he believes, what he feels does not make one bit of difference. He understands that it's his internal sinful nature that has encouraged him to turn his path away from Jerusalem. And he doesn't need other people echoing in on it. Most of you know I spent a good bit of time on the examining committee over the years, and I've shared this with you before, but we had, uh, this, this hasn't been so many years ago, maybe four or five years ago, we had a group. There was, I, I guess it was two. They were Chinese nationals. They were not PCA guys. They belonged to, to a Presbyterian church, underground Presbyterian church in China, in communist China. They had no body to ordain them. So they, because they knew of the PCA and its reputation and because they had participated in some PCA functions and churches while they've been here in the States, they approached our presbytery and asked us if we would be willing to ordain them. Not actually ordain them, but to examine them with their ordination exams. Very delightful guys. There was two of them. Just, just they were, Those are the kind of people you bump into on occasion. You, you think, boy, I wish I was more like this person. Humble, brilliant, theologically, biblically, every way you can imagine. By the time we left the room that day, the examining committee felt like we had been examined and taught. But when I was studying this passage about Paul this week, I thought about those two guys because you need to understand that their picture was very much like Paul's picture. They knew that when they left here, they very well could be going into very great trial and tribulation. But guess what? Just like Paul, they went. There's a sense from a human perspective that the easy thing for them to do would have been to say, hey, let me tell you, we, we actually had Presbytery at the, at the Chinese National Church that's in the Orlando area. We actually had Presbytery shortly after that. And let me tell you, I, I'm, I'm not sure I've been so blessed being in a church, particular church, anymore, ever than I was that particular day. These Chinese nationals here, and most, a lot of them can't even speak English hardly at all. But this solidly reformed church in Orlando, Chinese people. But like I said, I was reminded of those guys. They were going into the fire and it would have been easy for them not to but what did they do they chose to listen to what the Holy Spirit was telling them just like Paul not what people were saying because I'm sure that there were people encouraging them to stay I'm sure that there were a lot of the, those Chinese people down in Orlando that would love to have one of those young guys as their pastor 
But nonetheless, they listen to God, not people, just like the Apostle Paul did. So they leave Miletus. Remember, this is where Paul had met the Ephesian elders, as we talked about last week. Made their way. back towards Jerusalem. Remained entire for seven days. And guess what? During that time, the disciples of Christ who were there also encouraged Paul not to go back to Jerusalem. He's not just getting it here, there, yonder. He's getting it everywhere he goes. Don't go, don't go, please don't go. Some people may have said, you're crazy if you go. But contrary to the will of men, Paul is... Ready, willing, and able. To leave and head on to Jerusalem. Now before that happens, something else takes place. And just as we saw with the Ephesian elders as we studied last week. At Miletus, before he left, Paul prayed. With all of them. Again, we're not given the content of the prayers that we can imagine that they were designed to equip, encourage, and strengthen both parties, whether it be Paul or the other people that are gathered around him. Now, Paul had a very special calling. At the same time, every person that was part of that prayer group also has a calling from God. It's not looked like Paul's. The same thing was true for every one of us. You know, we've had a men's group that has met for prayer every single Wednesday since the inception, or even before the inception of Springs Presbyterian Church. And I would imagine that I can say this for most of them, is that, that, that we gather there on Wednesday morning, and we all come with different thoughts and feelings and activities going on in our own lives and this, that, and the other. But by the time we leave, we are all very much encouraged. Sometimes it's only two of us. Every now and then, it's me, myself, and I. Happened like two or three times in 30 years. But we do that. And we have women's prayer. They, they pray in their small groups and things. And it's just... I don't know how anyone could ever get through doing any serious kind of ministry, whether it be personal, private, or whatever, or more public, without having a whole lot of prayer that goes into it. But I would imagine, you know, we don't know the content of this prayer, but I would imagine it was designed to equip, encourage, and strengthen both parties, not just Paul, but the people he was leaving behind.
Finally, the, uh, the ship that Paul is on lands in Caesarea Maritima, which is uh, basically the port city of Jerusalem. There they meet Philip the Evangelist. Now, I want you, don't want you to confuse that with the, one of the apostles was named Philip. It's not him. This Philip happens to be one of the first deacons that we talked about all the way back in chapter 6 of Acts. They had four unmarried daughters uh, who prophesied because they had been given the gift of prophecy, a revelatory gift. Something that, as far as the Old Testament goes, was almost exclusively given to men, with few exceptions. Miriam, the sister of Moses. Deborah, who was one of the judges, and there's a, a few, but almost exclusively to men in the Old Testament. But see, we already have reason to believe that in the New Dispensation or the New Testament that women would play a more central role when it came to things. We studied Dorcas in Joppa all the way back in chapter 9, verse 36. Very prominent believer in Joppa. While Paul's in Caesarea here, a prophet named Abagus came down from Judea and he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. None of this stuff is really news to Paul. If you jump all the way back to chapter 9, which is where Paul is first called to be a missionary. <laughs> uh, God revealed many things to Paul, and one of those is this. I will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. In other words, this was no news to Paul at all. This was something that God told him very early on at the very beginning of his calling that he was going to suffer a great deal. In other words, for Paul, looking at Jerusalem now is just more suffering that he's already been enduring for all of these years. Remember, he was stoned in Lystra. And that was very early on. That probably would have been enough for you and I to decide that's the way the Lord's speaking to me. He doesn't want me to do this missionary work. If he did, he wouldn't let something like that happen to me. Just remember all the Christian martyrs down through the generations. Someone has estimated the total number through the generations as 70 million. Now how they came up with that number, I don't know. The 70 million people, we're talking about 70 million people who have specifically given their life for Christ. 
because they refused to turn their back on him. There were documented, these are documented martyrdoms in 2023. 5,600. So 5,600 of our brothers and sisters in one year in this world today, today's world, died for no other reason than they refused to give up Christ. On ta- top of that, uh, you know, this one study estimated that there were 124,000 Christians who were displaced from their homes just simply because of their Christian faith. The point I'm making is this, and that is the world you and I live in is very different than the world that, we, that a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ live in. We have truly been blessed with the right and the freedom to worship in any manner that we wish to, when, however often we want to, wherever we wish to. And we know there are a lot of people today that would love to take that right away from us. They're looking for the opportunity, a door that will open the way, the path for them to do that. Paul comes to the point this, he gets tired of hearing it. He's heard it from everyone. I would imagine everyone that he's spoken to, they're all trying to discourage him from what he's doing. And finally, you know, Paul has great patience, it seems. But finally, it's like he, he meets the, the ends of his patience. And what he says is this in verse 21, verse 13. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Get out of my way. You're hindering me. You're holding me back. Years later, when he's imprisoned in Rome, he'll write this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Years later, when he's in Rome, he writes this, I am already poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, Paul is not near as close to death, I think, as he thinks he probably is at this point, because the reality is he's going to be under arrest for years. He still has a long time to live. But the impressive thing about Paul is this, is he doesn't let any of that hinder him from continuing in his ministry. As far as you and I go, you know what I would say? is that The most effective part 
of Paul's ministry that comes to us is not necessarily through the book of Acts, but through the epistles of Paul. The epistles of Paul are like a window that enable us to look in to the heart and the mind and the soul, in essence, of the apostle Paul. And in those epistles, you see the things revealed that, that, that were very most important to him and things that he, he believed that church people needed to know and to hear. I've mentioned this before, and I don't want to make a big deal out of it, because it didn't go on for very long, maybe a year or two, but when, when I was a pretty new Christian, uh, and, and this was before I even, even started seminary, uh, I got involved in prison uh, fellowship, you know, Chuck Colson's prison ministry and, and whatever, and there were two or three other guys that I knew that were doing it uh, and all of that, and I don't want you to get the idea that I spent a whole lot of time in jail uh, but we did. We did made res- regular visits for about a year or so to some of the prisons in the area. It's kind of a weird thing. The first time you go go in, you know, and, and they get all your information and they open up the gate and the let you in, you're sitting there going, I sure hope they remember I'm supposed to leave when the time comes. <laughs> But we always had conversations with the guards on the way in and on the way out. We always spent time meeting with the, uh, the minister that was on site there. And let me tell you, some of them were pretty flaky in their theology and all that other kind of stuff. But let me tell you, they were so pleased to have other people coming, you know, and helping them. But one of the things that we heard from the guards over and over and over and over again, I'm not sure we ever made a visit that we didn't hear this from someone. Thank you so much for coming. This is the only thing that makes a difference in the lives of these inmates. See, Paul will use imprisonment effectively to further the gospel of Jesus Christ in places he probably never would have reached before. You and I are blessed by Paul's prison ministry even though we live 2,000 years later. See, those epistles that we call the prison epistles, those that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon at the very least. Paul, for most of it, was under house arrest. In other words, he could go about doing a lot of his regular stuff and whatever, Paul saw prison as an an opportunity to minister, (laughs) and he pursued it. 
He was very effective at it. Notice all the people around him. These were people who cared about him, who loved Paul, who would have probably done just about anything for Paul. Encourage him. Encouraging him to back off. To cease and desist. Don't go to Jerusalem, whatever you do, Paul. No, and reality is this is it seems like just about everybody that he bumped into tried to, tried to dissuade him from going. But see, Paul understood something that I think most of us don't really give enough thought to, and that is this. A couple of things. One of those is God has foreordained everything that comes to pass, period. God also has a plan for every one of us. And Paul knew that. He understood always that even though the circumstances didn't seem to favor him, they were the result of God's plan for him. This is what God had planned out for him to do. And I want to remind us this morning that God has foreordained everything that comes to pass. Every single thing that happens is foreordained by God. Everything. And it has to be that way. If that were not true, then God would not be all-powerful and almighty and all of that. God is intentional always in everything that he does. He doesn't do anything by happenstance. He always has reasons and purposes in all of it. And sometimes those are obvious to people like us. And other times we are completely blind to what's going on. I have little conversations with God. You know, if you were just kind of, you know, hiding in the bushes, you know, when I was hanging out in a particular place and walking around, and you might hear me talking to God. Uh, and most of the time when I'm talking to him is when I'm really disturbed about a particular thing that's going on. It's not unusual for me to say, Lord, what in the world are you doing? How in the world can this be your will? It makes no sense to me <laughs> what good could possibly come out of this one. See, God is foreordained not only the good, but he's also foreordained what we perceive to be as bad. People are very opinionated. 
everybody has an opinion and just about all of us want to make sure everybody knows what it happens to be. How much effort and time do you and energy do you think gets wasted on people simply resisting the will of God? Not doing what they know God wants them to do or to have them do. As I was growing up, I was always surrounded by very opinionated people. My father was probably the most opinionated person that I ever met in my whole lifetime. I told I would have told you then, I'll tell you the same thing now. He had an opinion about everything. Personally, I've never really cared for strongly opinionated people. I'm not telling you I didn't love my dad. That's not what I'm saying. Don't breathe that into it. That's partly because of my upbringing, because that's what I was under all the time. <laughs> so when I got older in my life, I didn't have to, li I had to listen to what my dad had to say. But there are times now when I don't have to listen to what people have to say. But the fact of the matter is, like father, like son, that I'm probably the most opinionated person that I know. And you are probably the most opinionated person that you know. Because we always think that our opinion matters. And most of the time we believe our opinion matters above everyone else's opinion. That is our sinful nature speaking to us, whispering in our ear and pulling, tugging on our heart. Let me ask you something. Where do you think you and I would be if Paul had listened to his own fallen sinful nature? We certainly wouldn't have all this stuff we're talking about. It'd be a big chunk taken out of the New Testament. I mean, it had to be hard enough for Paul to do what he was doing without people discouraging him from doing it. And that just seems that that's all he got from anybody, even the people most close to him. But he knew this. He knew that God was, was guiding every step that he took, and he trusted him to do it. If Paul had listened to the advice and counsel of well-meaning people rather than the conviction of the Holy Spirit, where would you and I be today? What we do and what we don't do matters. In fact, the choices that we make have eternal ramifications.
There's a sense in which we do or don't do echoes into eternity. Paul understood that. Do we? In the same sense Paul did. Paul also practiced that. Do we? In the same sense that Paul did. I think one of the most things, particular things we need to remember this morning is the same Holy Spirit that guided Paul through his life is guiding every one of us as well. He has things for us to do. I've been preaching now for 30 years. And you people really amaze me because I'm not sure I could sit in the same pew every Sunday for 30 years and listen to the same person preaching almost all the time. So you need to understand something. You impress me because you all do something week after week after week. I'm not too sure that Keith could do. Maybe that's why God put me here. Let me just tell you this. To preach is an honor granted by God to a comparative few. I still can't believe he called me to do it. Some people question whether I've been called to do it at times. But let me just tell you this. You may be one of those people. Just like Paul, I'm here for one reason. And that's because I feel this is where God wants me to be. Doing what God wants me to do. I turned 70 just a few weeks ago, so all you need to understand something, that is I'm not going to be doing this a whole lot longer. And let me tell you, the day that I step out of the pulpit is going to be heart-wrenching. But people come and people go. My hope is this, is that when that day comes, that you guys will love and nurture your new pastor the same way you have me. special group of people don't let anybody tell you otherwise amen